friend of mine, he's now in heaven, Haddon Robinson, he um, was once telling me about a conversation he had with his daughter. His daughter left home years ago, went to college, and she said, Daddy, when I left home, I left with your faith. When I came back, I came back with my own faith. I'll never forget that simple conversation because I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it in my own family. I've witnessed it in the church over the years. There's a beautiful thing when a child is raised in a Christian home. They're taught about the scriptures. They're raised in a church. They memorize scripture. But every one of them has to navigate a journey. Sometimes that is almost a seamless journey and you don't even know they've made the trip. But they have to. And it begins someday, sometimes they're just sitting in their bed laying at night or sometimes they go to college and they ask this question, why do I believe what I believe? Do I believe just because my dad believed that way? Do I believe, if I was raised in another home, let's just say I was raised in a Muslim home, I was raised in a Hindu home, I was raised in a secularist home. If I was raised there, would I not just replicate them? In other words, do I believe only because of the context of where I was raised? They all have to ask that question. Don't be afraid of that. In fact, I would say encourage it. Why? Because if they don't move from your faith to their own faith, it won't stand the test of time, nor will it ever stand the test of life. They have to come to that point. And if they do, and they make that journey, and they're in the midst of that journey, point them to this text. Jesus is having a conversation with a group of uh, religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, all kinds of religious leaders. And they were accusing him of being a false prophet. They actually were accusing him of heresy. And and the reason is because, as we looked at last week, Christ was healing on the Sabbath, of which they were aghast. That's horrible. And Jesus comes back because I'm just doing what my father and I are doing. My father's healing, I'm healing. Oh, it sent them over the edge. They were looking for knives. They wanted to kill him. And rather than come back and say, let me tell you why you should believe in me, Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Why? All he's doing is quoting scripture. The scripture says, by the testimony of two or three, a truth is validated. Paul says the same thing. There's a long-standing belief that if you have the testimony of one, it can't be valid. But if you have the testimony of two or three, then the truth can be what? Validated, verified. And so Jesus, if you will, plays by their rules. I'll play by your rules. I don't really need the testimony of men, but so that, he says in this text, so that you might be saved, I will surrender myself to your court. However, you have to deal with the evidence. And Jesus doesn't give them three. He gives them five. I love the, if you will, the confidence of Christ. I am not going to try and defend myself. And and by the way, parents, you probably would do well to not try and defend Jesus. Point them to the scriptures. You look at them. 
You come to your conclusion. I can tell you what I believe. I can tell you where I land. And I can tell you why I do. But when you walk out of this house, if all you walk out with is my faith, it won't do you any good. You have to move out of a borrowed faith to an owned faith. And the way you do that is by looking at the evidence. And Jesus says, I've got five witnesses that will tell you, I am sent by God to give you life, if you'll trust me. The first one he begins with, he says, there is another who testifies in my favor. Doesn't identify the person. He just says, there's another. It's not, it's not an impersonal force. It is a personal force that says, there's another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. He doesn't identify who it is. So there's a lot of speculation. Is it God the Father? Well, he's going to speak about God the Father in a little while. And so it doesn't make sense in this text that he would use God twice. He has five separate testimonies. I think it's much better to land on the side of the Holy Spirit That way you have the triune God in this text. And if you go back to John chapter 3, verse 34, it says, For the one whom God sent speaks God's word, since he gives the Spirit without measure. So the Spirit is sent, and the Spirit is coming, and the Spirit is testifying to Christ. Later in 1 John 5, John makes this statement, he goes, the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now, I don't know when. I'm not a child psychologist. Don't even pretend to be one. So I have no idea when Jesus became fully aware that he was God. I know by the age of 12. We know that because Jesus was hanging out in the temple and his disciples went on home, his parents went on home and they were making their way to home and all of a sudden looked at each other and Joseph said to Mary, hey, where's Jesus? And Mary says, I don't know. I thought he was with you. And they looked at each other. We've been walking together for a couple of hours. He's not with us. Where? They went back and looked and kind of like home alone, but Jesus wasn't home. He was temple alone. They went back there and they got in there and married Joseph. What are you doing? And Jesus, you could just see his face. It's like, why are you so shook up? I'm just doing my father's business. At 12, he knew who he was. I don't know. I'd have a hard time arguing it too. He was fully aware that he was God. I've seen some two-year-olds who think they're God. (laughs) Uh, I've seen some parents who think their two-year-olds are God. So maybe I'm off. But somewhere the Holy Spirit bore witness. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that he testifies or his testimony about me is valid. There was a point in Christ's life where the Holy Spirit helped him embrace the reality of who he was. And there is a point in your life that the Holy Spirit helps you embrace the reality of who Christ is. It's what he's arguing for. There's going to be a moment, John 16 tells us, that he is going to leave, Jesus says. I'm going to leave so that I can send the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Jesus says, because the Holy Spirit will do things that Jesus says, 
I can't. Sounds like heresy, but it's not. The Holy Spirit who is omnipresent, who has no limitations of geography, can enter into a person's life, John 16, and convict him of sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin, the chasm between them and God. Righteousness, the way we get right with God. And judgment, the way you and I are going to stand before God one of these days and we're going to be held accountable for what we did with Jesus and what we did with our life. And every one of us are going to be held accountable to that. And the Holy Spirit is helping you get a grasp on that. Why? Because if you don't see yourself correctly, you'll never have a need for a Savior. If you don't understand that your selfishness comes not because of your mom or your dad, it's because there is a sin nature inside of you that makes you obsessed with yourself. You have to get your way. Everyone else must play by your rules. You have to be the one that's right. And when the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to convict you, you begin to discover, I am not holy. I am not even close to perfection like God is. And how do I make it right? Because one day I will stand before God and he will hold me accountable. One flight I was on, I was talking to a gentleman and we, our discussion went to the issue of guilt. He had disclosed to me that he was an atheist. And so we were talking about guilt and I asked him, I said, hey, Art, what do you do with your guilt? And he kind of pondered for a moment and he goes, well, the reality is, I, I think I spend a lot of money on some camps and some areas where I help teenagers who are at risk. And if I was honest, I'd probably do that to kind of counterbalance the bad things I've done. And, and I asked him, I said, Art, you said you're an atheist. Yeah. I said, who are you paying that bill to? Who are you, who's going to read the balance? If there's no God and you're not going to stand before any God, then to be quite honest with you, who cares how you live? He looked at me and smiled and he goes, I don't make a very good atheist, do I? I leaned over to him and I said, Art, I just want you to know from my perspective, the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And he's helping you understand. I don't care what you declare about yourself. What you need to know is what the scriptures teach is that the Holy Spirit is in you and he's working and he's trying to help you wrestle with the chasm that's between you and God and the inability that we have anything in our life to make us right with God and that one day you and I are going to stand before God. It's not going to be a little balancing act. How much money, how many kids did you help? It's what you do with Jesus. And Jesus says there is a spirit, another who is testifying in my favor. Friends, you don't have to convince a person of that. You don't have to defend that. You can live with the conviction of that. Your non-Christian friends are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And what you want to do in your children, in your grandchildren, in your spouse, in your friends, is you want to be aware of that and partner with that. And when you see the evidence, whether it be on an airline or walking in your backyard.
Jesus says their Holy Spirit will be testifying to the reality of Christ. You can be assured of that. Secondly, he tells them, he goes, I also want to bear witness in this courtroom of the testimony of John. You've sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony. In other words, Jesus, I'm not going to surrender my reputation to human testimony. However, to play your game, if you will, to enter into your courtroom so that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light. You chose for a time and you enjoyed it, but the inference is you've even cut him off. Who was John? John was the son of Elizabeth. Elizabeth was married to Zachariah. They were childless. He a priest, she a God-fearing woman. God comes to her and says, in her elder age, you're going to have a son, supernatural. Your husband's going to be silent and it's going to be the best year of your married life. (laughs) He is raised The Nazareth vow. Mary, she gets pregnant, quite supernatural. Not quite as elaborate as Elizabeth, but it's supernatural. And because it is a difficult thing sometimes to bear the weight of the supernatural work of God, Mary makes her way to her cousin, which is Elizabeth. And she finishes out the time of her pregnancy. I think it's one of the sweetest gifts God gave her. The children are born. There's all kinds of events along the way. And John comes on and he is a man of the scriptures. He knows the scriptures well. And he knows what the Messiah looks like. And he is preaching about the Messiah. And Jesus comes along and John knows what Isaiah prophesies. And he looks at Jesus. And one day when Jesus is walking down the path, he says to everyone listening, behold, the Lamb of God, the one Isaiah spoke of, who has come to take away your sin and my sin. Jesus looks at those guys and says, hey, your own prophet, the first prophet you've received in 400 years. The one that the story is renowned about of Elizabeth and Zechariah and all. The, the fact that he was, he was prophesied about and he was supernatural in his origin. That one said one day, Jesus is the Lamb of God, sent by God to take care of your sins. The third witness. Interestingly, on this one, Jesus says, I have testimony that is weightier than that of John. Now, stop for a moment. Think about what he's saying. The entirety of the Old Testament is given to us by what? Prophets who are speaking the very words of God. There there was no one that was higher than the prophets. They were the representation of God to the people. They were speaking the word of God. They were to be obeyed, if you will. And along comes Jesus and he goes, yep, 
weightier than your prophet, Jesus says, are the works of my hand. Weightier than John. I have a testimony that is weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given to me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father is in me. What Christ is telling you is, is if you want to answer the question correctly, is Jesus sent by God to be the Messiah, to be the one who saves the world? Jesus says, testimony or evidence number three, just look at his life. Now I believe, I absolutely believe that there are miracles that God still performs today. I believe in James chapter 5 that if somebody comes, we're going to be doing it after the service today. Somebody comes and they have a surgery or they have an illness and they want to be prayed over and they want to be anointed. I absolutely believe that that is given to the church and it should be practiced. But my friends, it pales compared to Jesus. Let's look just in the gospel of John alone at what John identifies the significance of the miraculous work of Christ. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no one is going to be able to work. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believed not. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. When you see the water turn to wine, Jesus says, it should be a testimony to you that I'm not an ordinary man. If I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe me not, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I am in him. So that was the very point he made when he healed the the lame man. My father is working. He didn't care if it's the Sabbath. It's a good day to heal. And Jesus says, I am working because my father is working. John chapter 14, believe me that I am in the father and that the father is in me. Or else, you can believe my words, but if you don't, believe me for the very work's sake. Look at my life. And then one that I think is so significant. If I had not done among them the works which no other man has ever done, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated me, both me and my father. That's an important line for you to not miss. No one has done what Christ has done. Are there miracles today? I think so. Are there supernatural things that happen? Absolutely. Are there revelations that the the Muslim world is seeing of Jesus? I'm in. But none of them compared to the one who walked on water, the one who turned the water into wine, the one who raised people from the dead, the one who spoke life to an ailing child a long way away, the one who walked out of a grave. And if you want to look for the evidence of should I trust Christ, is Jesus uniquely and distinctly different than all other prophets, than all other teachers? Jesus says, I give to you the testimony of my life and work. 
And if you can find somebody that has greater power than Christ, that has more significant supernatural divine wisdom, then follow them. Get up, walk out of church and go follow them. But Jesus says, hey, if I test about, testify about myself, it's not valid. But he does offer them the portfolio of all of his miraculous works. Take a look at every one of them. Interview every one of them. And you find that the Father has sent me. The fourth witness is God. Starts in verse 37. He says, and the Father who has sent me He himself has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice. You can't. Can't see his form. Nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one that he has sent. When did this happen? I think it happened in a number of ways. When Jesus walked out of the Jordan River, he'd been baptized by John. And it says the heavens tore open and the Holy Spirit descended. And the father spoke those most kind words. You're my beloved son and I love you. I love you more than anything. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses is there and Elijah is there. And Jesus is there with Peter, James and John. And, and God the father speaks and, and he says to them all, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. In John chapter 12, the the Lord says to the Father, Oh, glorify your name. And the Father speaks to him, I will glorify my name through you. And they're debating about the cross and about not wanting to go to the cross. And the Father says, In that moment, son, I will glorify myself. But if you go back into the Old Testament, where did the Father speak of the Son? said, I will put enmity between you and your offspring. And my servant will come and he will crush the serpent's head. And then he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to provide for you a sacrifice. And it will be a picture of what I will provide for my people. And then he went to Moses and he goes, I don't want to lead my people out of their slavery and I want to bring them and I want them to cross out of death into life. And it's going to be a picture. The entire Exodus journey is going to be a picture of what I will do for every person as I lead them out of their slavery into their freedom. When Jesus was walking after the resurrection, he was having a little Bible study with a couple of guys and he says to them and he taught them from the prophets through the law about everything and how it testified of his life. Much like John the Baptist, Jesus says to these Jewish leaders, all you have to do, guys, is read the Old Testament. All you have to do is look at the Exodus, look at the sacrifice, look at the provision, and you will see Jesus. For 4,000 years, God prepared his people for Christ. And he witnessed about Jesus. And finally, he offers this testimony. You diligently, verse 39, study the scriptures. This is an important line. 
Because you think by them, you possess eternal life. You see, they thought that if they were obedient to the scriptures, to the law, that they would be saved. And I think there are some of you who think the same thing. If I adhere to the Bible, if I follow the Bible, if I try and honor God and do unto others what you know, God has done to me, if, and if I try and do all of these things and adhere to whatever fabrication or whatever kind of summary I give the scriptures, that God will receive me. My friend Larry, all of his life, said, you know what, I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good things, and I just hope when I get upstairs, the big man loves me. And his entire life was much like my friend Art. It was a, a balance scheme between that which he'd done poorly and that which he thought he had done well. Just like these guys. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. We can run the same risk. You will find people around our church all the time arguing for the plenary inspiration of God's word. We believe that all 66 books are inspired by God. They are applicable to your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. They were preserved by God. We believe all of that. But here's the issue. You can never worship the scriptures. Because they are merely, if you will, a revelation of the one who came to save you. Jesus makes this statement. These are the scriptures that testify about me. You're not saved through your adherence to the Bible. You're not saved because of your absolute divine belief in the inspiration of the scriptures. You're saved because you trust the one who came from heaven, who died on a cross, who's willing to save you because of his own work. Jesus has the authority and the power to give us eternal life. And his invitation to them is the same invitation that he gives to you. Trust him. If you're one of those individuals that this morning I was describing you, you know what, I've lived on my parents' faith. It's okay. You do worse than that. But there comes a point where you have to ask yourself the question, why do I believe? Why do I believe in Christ? Why do I believe that he is the giver of life? And Jesus would offer to you in the courtroom of a bunch of Jewish leaders five things that I want to send you out of here with. If we were in a cul-de-sac like I used to live in, I could go grab my Muslim friends, I could grab my Mormons, and I could grab my Orthodox Jews We could meet out in the middle, which we would often do on a Sunday afternoon. And my Muslim friend would ask, did we preach anything out of Moses? My Orthodox folks would ask me something about the law. And if we went out there and had this little fun discussion, we could talk about God. And to be honest with you, we could 
Well, we could talk till the sun went down and we'd have great agreement. We would think that we were all in the same boat together. And then along, I would realize that if I bring up the name Jesus, my one friend would tell me, you believe not in one God, but in three. My friend over here would say, oh, I believe in God, the same God that you do, but I'm still waiting for the Messiah to come. And the other would tell me, well, I believe Jesus was a good prophet. He just wasn't the prophet like Joseph. And I would offer to you, if you ever find yourself in that room, you have to take yourself back to say, why do I believe? Why am I willing to stake my entire life on this truth? And thankfully, Jesus has not asked you to blindly trust him. He's offered you five things. There will be a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. There will be the testimony of those who grew up with him, served with him, witnessed him, and bore witness to the prophetic teaching about him. Most notably, there will be his life and his miraculous life and the works he did. Most significantly, the body and the blood of Christ that was shed for you, that was authenticated when he walked out of the grave three days. There will be the congruence of the scripture that for 4,000 years predicted, prophesied, taught about the fulfilled Messiah in Christ. But you're going to have to answer that question. And I trust and pray like thousands before you that you will be able to move from your parents' faith to your faith. And in that moment, you will understand Christ has the authority and he has the power. And when he gives you eternal life, it will transform your life forever.